the transmitter. All right, this is Synaptic, episode two of Synaptic, our podcast that explores the people, the science, and the challenges of autism research, and to some extent, the greater neuroscience space. I'm the host of the show, and my name is Brady Huggin. All right, let's get on with this episode. And we're going to start in the northeastern part of Oregon. There's a little town there called Echo. The Columbia River, which is the demarcation between Oregon and Washington State, is about 15 miles due north of Echo. Uh, The town has a little historical significance. The Oregon Trail ran just south of it, for instance. But otherwise, there is not a lot to Echo, to be honest. Its official area is just 0.6 square miles. And its population in the 2020 census was only 633 people. But a few generations ago... A man from Finland got off a boat in the United States and made his way west and started a farm in Echo. And that farm was where Connie Kazri grew up. That's our guest for today, Connie Kazri. When she was growing up in Echo, the population was less than 500 people. And she still goes back there to visit at least once a year. We talked about that on this podcast. We also talked about the fact that her mother's father was a farmer. And we talked a little about Oregon and how she values the, as she said, rugged and independent people there. We talked about using the Jasper treatment approach with autistic children. We talked about the problems with ABA. And we even talked about the International Society for Autism Research Conference, colloquially known as INSAR, as Connie is the past president of that society. And of course, we talked about why she chose the career she did. All of that is coming up in this hour. Now, I recorded Connie at her office in the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior on the campus of UCLA. I set up two mics over her desk. And afterwards, she walked me through parts of her lab, and I got to meet a few of her grad students. But let's pick the talk up here, where Connie and I are looking at some art that hangs on her office wall. This art was created by an autistic young man she has known since kindergarten named Leland. So this is episode two of Synaptic with Connie Kazri, starting right now. So if I scan the art... No? Because that looks amazing. Usually it just... Oh, I see. I see what you mean. Oh, there's Lila. Maybe that was supposed to come up. Maybe. Usually... But it has like a 3D element almost to it. Yeah, it has sound and stuff. You know, so he's, you know, he's talented. Um, But he didn't do well in inclusion because nobody, you know, they have such low expectations. Yeah. So it's still the battle I fight today. All right, well, let's get it. We're rolling, yeah, by the way. We're rolling. So oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my um, goodness. Well, the first, so uh, you mentioned what I was going to open with is that you've been on this campus for over 25 years. Now you're telling me over 30 years. Over 30 years. Yeah, yeah I came in 1985. Well, I mean, is that because you have found UCLA to be the best place for you or that you've done with your travels or what? You know? um, well, I finished my PhD, got married, and yeah. then we, we traveled out here. Um, both for postdocs in this NIH uh-huh. um, 
And I'm from Oregon. So for well, me, coming back west was really great. Okay. So that, let's go there. So wh- where uh-huh. were you actually born? I mean, I know you went to Oregon for college, and we'll get there. But were you born in that area? Uh-huh. I was born in eastern Oregon near Pendleton. Uh-huh. So I grew up on a farm, then went off to college. and was like, a, like a generational farm? Your family were farmers? My father was a farmer, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. In so eastern how, Oregon. So... I, I mean, was first to go to college, and uh-huh. my, my, all of the, my parents had four kids. We all went to college, so, but, we, but they didn't go to college, yeah. so we were first generation. But was that like college. a generational farm? Or no, I mean, mm, let's see. I guess my father's father had also farmed. Yeah, my father's father was from Finland, uh-huh. settled in eastern Oregon, was a farmer, and my father was a farmer. Um, but he also had a business, a farm business, like um, fertilizers. So selling fertilizer. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A- after sense. he, he was a farmer, and then uh, we sold the farm, and he moved to a fertilizer business. Oh, I see. Okay. But we still lived on a farm. But his father came over from Finland and and was a to, farmer to the U.S. and started mm-hmm. a farm. So somehow he came over, matriculated across the country, mm-hmm. and started a farm in yeah. Oregon. Wow, that's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And then what about your mother's side of the family? Um, she also, uh, her father, I believe, also was a farmer. Grew up in Idaho and Oregon, that area. Met your dad and moved? Uh-huh. Um, met my father in Oregon, I believe. I mean, she was 18 or 19 when she got married. So. What was she doing in Oregon? How'd she get from Idaho to Oregon um, at that age? Actually, I think she was born in Oregon, and then my grandparents later moved to Idaho. So I'm not sure she ever really lived in Idaho. Oh, I see. So she met him in Oregon. Yeah, she met him in Oregon. Yeah, we were Oregonians. There were a lot of Finns, though, that settled in Oregon, especially around the Portland area, Fen Hill and that that area. So you're half Finnish? I'm half Finnish, yep. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go to Finland? I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. Do you like? Did your father go back and you looked up family that whole thing? Uh, we did. My I took my father back for, you know, the first time probably thirty two years ago, and so he did look up relatives. Oh, so he had never been. He had never been. Oh, amazing! Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Okay, so you're growing up on this farm. Uh-huh. Right? Your family is not, I'm going to say, academically inclined. Or not. They did not come from professors. Your parents right. were not. So how did? You, how many siblings do you have? You have three. I have three sibs, uh-huh. Boys, girls? Uh, there were two boys and two girls. Mm-hmm. So how did you all end up going to college? Was it like... It was valued. Yeah. So my parents really valued education. My mother always tells the story that she got a scholarship to be a ner- to go to nursing school to be a nurse. And, my, and her father told her that if she went away to college, that she could never come home again. Because they grew up in the Depression, uh-huh. and there, she was one of seven siblings, or seven kids. And so the idea there was that you didn't go to college, you just worked, and you helped the family, and those kind of things. So instead, she got married. <laughs> right. So in her father's mind, if you left the family to go to nursing school, then you've sort of broken this tie to the family and don't come back, because yeah. you have not helped us in right. this moment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why would you be privileged to be able to do that? So yeah. they, both yeah. my parents really valued education, even though their um, parents did not go to college. In fact, my grandfather, who came from Finland, had only gone to three days of school. In ever, his life. In his life. In Finland. Mm-hmm. But he was a very more. talented musician. And what did he play? The um... he played the violin, and he played, or he called it the fiddle, and um, the accordion. 
So he, you're telling me he had three days of school in Finland someplace. Did mm-hmm. he come by himself to the Yes. Years? Totally mm-hmm. by himself mm-hmm. as like a young man in his mm-hmm. 20s or something like that. Yep. Came all the way west, started a farm. Mm-hmm. That gets handed down to your father. Your father meets your mother. Mm-hmm. Your mother squelches her dreams of being a nurse, marries your father, and starts mm-hmm. a family. Yeah, I've had four kids in five and a half years. Oh, my God. Young? Like <laughs> yeah, the first was. one at 18? Probably 19, yeah. 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 Wow, and they're still together? Uh, well, my father's died, yeah. yes, but they were, yeah, still together. Well, he died at 95, and she's 92, Are and very serious? healthy. Uh huh. Have you had your genome sequenced? <laughs> um, he did that, you know, uh, tw- whatever it's called, yeah, one of those. I or don't know which one. Yeah, one of them he did. And because we always thought that maybe he was really Estonian, because in Estonia you see the last, my last name, Kasari, uh-huh. lakes and towns and various places, so it's more Eastern European. Um, turned out he was 99% Finnish. What was so, that 1%? I don't know. Some, I, <laughs> I think they could yeah, right. something else. Yeah, something yeah. else. Okay, so do, I want to know about, like, you're growing up and you're saying, your parents are saying, look, uh, you need to go to college. It's an opportunity that we need to take advantage of. There's a good yeah. public school, in fact, a, a state school right around the corner. Yeah. Um, well, it was four hours away, well, but yeah. yeah. Well, no, I think that we just never thought we wouldn't go to college. Mm. We always grew up, all of us, knowing that we would go to college. And I just followed my you know, brother and sister to Oregon State. I didn't even think about it. Uh-huh. I didn't have a choice. I just followed them there. My brother was just a year and a half older than me, a year ahead of me in school. Um, and he was a veterinarian, uh-huh. and um, so kind of related to farming. Right. And my sister ended up becoming a teacher, but my younger brother did ag- agriculture economics. So farming, and my sister lives on a farm. Oh, she does. So mm-hmm, like in a Texas. Farm? Um, well, they are both teachers, but yes, yeah. they have uh, cattle, and you know. Yeah, it's not their f- main source of livelihood, no. but it's a working no. farm. Yeah. I okay. mean, I think my all of my family is kind of oriented towards farming. Do you have those sorts of memories of the farm and mm-hmm. things that you do? You, would do you wish that you lived on a farm? You know, that kind of thing versus the middle of Los Angeles. <laughs> I certainly never wished that. <laughs> Growing up, I always wanted to go away and not live there because it was so very small. Yeah, you know, very small school, not a lot of opportunities there, and so. For me, it was always I would, you know, go away. But I, there's, it's very peaceful to be on farm. So yeah. I enjoy those kind of vacations. Um, and I guess I wouldn't rule that out at some point. But I don't think about it in no. the same way. Do you miss the Pacific Northwest? Oh, yeah. I think the Pacific Northwest is great. But I think California is great, too. Well, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, it's yeah. sunny and 75 every day. Yeah, it feels right. like it to me. That's right. Um, yeah, because the Pacific Northwest has a really unique, it's almost like um, a temperate rainforest in that way. Yeah, but yeah. the people are kind of rugged yeah. and independent yeah, and absolutely. all of those things I value. Yeah, good. Okay. So anyway, you're, you're going to school. And how did you, did you think, what, what did you think you were going to do in college? Well, I thought I would do special education, which is what I ended up eventually doing. How come? Um, I think as a kid growing up in these small rural schools, if there was ever a kid with a disability, they just went to school with you. And so I remember sort of taking, uh, I remember in sixth grade taking this young boy with emotional problems sort of under my wing and just being kind of interested in him. And then in high school, you know, small school, didn't have much to do. I kind of, uh, I would 
go and help the teachers in the younger grades with kids. And I was always attracted to the kids who had learning problems or had a difficult time. So I was motivated by that. So when I got to Oregon State, I don't know what I wanted to do. I just went into psychology and education and was really motivated, motivated still by learning differences. Mm. So then I went from Oregon State to Peabody College. And yeah, Vanderbilt. In, yeah, yeah, in Nashville, right? My brother, my older brother, drove across the country with me and dropped oh, me off. Yep. How'd and that feel? That's a big change. Uh, it was a big change, yep. It was a big change. It was interesting. I liked it. I was always up for adventure, yeah. so that was fine. Did my master's and got really interested again in disability and then moved to Richmond. It just kept going east to Richmond, Virginia. Um, I actually taught at Fredericksburg, Virginia for a couple of years. I did not know that. Okay. So when you, when you went to get the master's, you thought, even when you left Oregon, um, you were thinking, okay, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a special yeah, ed teacher. That's right. And so the master's degree was really to sort of, I mean, you could have done that without the master's degree, I'm assuming. Uh, no, because it wasn't special ed at Oregon State. So I oh, had I to get a master's in sort of learning differences. Okay. And at Peabody, I really learned a lot about assessment and kids with disabilities. And you could kind of do one or two tracks. You could kind of go down a research track or you could just do a clinical. And I sort of, um, I think I did the research track actually. Um, although it felt pretty clinical as well. And then I just went into teaching for four years, two in Fredericksburg. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was the period of time in which I went to college was where it was like the late 70s, early 80s. And so kids with disabilities were just coming into public schools believe it or not. Oh, you mean like out of the institution almost? Well, the first time they were sort of brought or in. home. Here, yeah. They yeah. were at home, right? Yeah. They weren't allowed to go to school. So yeah. we were doing a lot of child find at that time of kids with severe and profound disabilities and trying to bring them into school. So that was one of my first experiences was actually in Tennessee in the summer bringing in these kids from the rural parts of Tennessee into schools. I mean, these were kids that were in bed all day. They were severe and profound. I don't yeah. know what we were thinking. Yeah, how did you, I mean, that's the, the thing, like today we would have a better idea on how to handle that, but back then it must have been, you know, you're breaking new ground on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So, that sounds incredibly hard. Yeah, these kids were coming to school. And some of them, we really needed to be in home with them because they were older and they weren't that medically stable. Yeah. Um, and so then when I went to Richmond after that summer, I got a job in, lived in Richmond, but I had a job in Fredericksburg, and they were all what they called back then severe and profound. So I had 17 kids in a classroom with another teacher and two aides, and the kids were mostly not mobile. Yeah. Um, but they ranged from about 3 to 21 in the same class, which was crazy. Right, how can you set your curriculum with that range? Well, I, we did. We did a, had a lot of rare syndromes, uh, did a lot of reading on what to do, and we did a very developmental approach with them because they didn't, there weren't like pre-made curriculums. Yeah, you know, no, we that's just, what I mean. Yo, so yeah, you're just we sort were, of doing it daily yep. on your, you're figuring it out day by day almost. Yep. Wow. Yep, wow. but we did a lot of interesting things so I worked two years there and then I then I took a position at 
uh, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, yeah. and we were working with babies because that was also a new area. So birth to two. And these little babies that were very low resourced, put them on a bus two days a week. They would go to a public school and then two days a week in home um, sessions. Basic language basic, skills. Yeah, develop, think, basic yeah. developmental yeah, skills. Yeah. Attending, um, most of them, well, we worked a lot on motor skills because they weren't ambulatory. Right. So. But I'm so, I'm, so at this point, you know, you've got a wide range. You've gone from, well, older all the way down to zero and two. You've seen children all mm-hmm. the way from zero up to about 25. I don't know, something like that. Right, but their developmental skills were not that broad. Uh-huh. So they were all pretty severe and profound. So we're talking about what are those developmental skills of kids between birth and age five? So that's what we focused on. And I focused a lot on sort of movement and positioning mm-hmm. because the kids were really severe and profound yeah I mean these were like this was a new area um, so it was it was kind of exciting I learned a lot um, but I only worked four years and then I went to do a PhD Chapel because yeah. yeah listen when, when teachers talk when they talk about teaching it's exhausting mm-hmm. and it's hard to keep kids in line and they come home at the end of the day and they're exhausted I'm, I'm assuming that's probably the same with the work you were doing yeah, I mean, I was pretty interested in the work, but it wasn't like a long-term commitment for me because it doesn't go any Teaching, it's hard with teaching. You know, it, you don't have um, the advancements that you, you don't really see, need. like, the kind of growth you're saying. Yeah, yeah. like, what was I going to do? Nobody, yeah. we were in the basement often of public schools. I was in regular public schools, and we were always working and trying to make, you know, sort of gains in awareness and inclusion and acceptance and but yeah you can only fight that battle for so long on such a small level so you want to go and and do it on a larger level so, so that's, that's why you did the phd mm-hmm. right so yep. you're sort of under resourced stuck in the basement often and yeah we're not getting any you're not making any real progress here okay that makes sense i mean special ed was always in the basement special ed was always kind of marginalized yeah. it continues to be marginalized yeah. it that hasn't shifted that much in 30 some years yeah um, yeah I mean our, our terminology has shifted and changed but our need for interventions is still as strong as it's ever been so now we argue for kids to be in inclusion and to have their needs met so it's not okay to just put somebody in a classroom and say well you, you can come and you can sit you know, that's not educating them. And so we do want to educate them within the context of yeah. whichever classroom they're in. Yeah. You, so are you saying sort of like the old version of inclusion was, yes, you can come into the room and sit with us, but there was real no no specific instruction. Right. Yeah, that's and that still on. happens that today. It still does. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they're lucky enough to get into the inclusive classroom. Yeah. People are still putting up barriers, roadblocks, to having kids in their classrooms. I'm assuming this is coming from the parents. No. Well, sometimes it comes from parents, but it comes from teachers, too. Uh So the teachers' union will restrict the number of kids on an IEP that can be in a classroom. Because they feel it's going to be disruptive or something. Disruptive, too much work, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we need to have new models for this to actually happen successfully. And there are models out there. We know what to do, Mm. and we know how to do it, but we don't do it. Why? It's a good question. 
I think it starts at the top. I think that our schools of education, our training of teachers has to be better, more responsive, more responsible. But we still are not there. Yeah. So I, you know, for 30 some years have been trying to work on this. <laughs> All right, so you go to, you go to Chapel Hill mm-hmm. for your PhD. And what was your dissertation? I, I don't know, actually. Oh, my dissertation <laughs> was on infants, six and 10 month old infants with disabilities. They were pretty severe disabilities. And looking at uh, parent-child interactions and the kinds of cues that parents would pick up on to um, determine if their kids were communicating with them. So sort of, I'm you, still doing the same yeah, work in a yeah. sense. But that was, yeah. that was sort of quantifying? You would observe mm-hmm. and say, these are the things that parents are picking up on. Yeah, readability of those infant signals. And that could then be compiled into, well, here's what we think symptoms of autism are. Well, it wasn't autism back then. It was These were just disabled babies, babies with um, learned disabilities. Yeah. Or, yeah. Down syndrome or other, it was a mixed group of kids and typical kids. Both, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you almost have like a control group there. Mm-hmm. Your, right. All right, so you finish, um, that was in 1985, I think you graduated from? Yeah, yeah. a long time ago. Okay, yeah. <laughs> did you, when did you meet your husband, if you both came west together? Um, uh, when I was in my PhD. You did? Yeah. Okay. You both finished around the same time? Mm-hmm. And then, did you both come to UCLA? Yeah. Mm-hmm. By chance or by planning? By planning. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. tell me, I think you came on an NIH grant, right? Yeah, we were both on the same NIH grant, mm-hmm. T32, okay. right. I worked with Marion Sigmund. So so tell me, you came, this is 85, you came out here, you obviously, didn't, you just were on the fellowship, I don't know, I think by, so five years you were on the fellowship? Three years, and then three years on the fellowship, and then two years as a staff psychologist here in Simmel, and then um, this job opened in the School of Ed, and so I applied, and you know, that's where I've been the ever rest since. Is history. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> right. As they say. Okay, so tell me about moving out here and what that was like. So, I mean, as you said, West Coast was nice for you. I mean, it's not Oregon, oh, but yeah. you didn't think, obviously, that you were going to be here the next 30 years. I don't imagine no. you would have thought that. No, I wasn't sure I wanted to do academics, period. Um, yeah, that was a shift. I mean, I think that the postdoc with Marion was really good for that in that the kind of work we were doing, the fact that I started to work on autism. I wasn't working on autism until oh, I did my postdoc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a really fascinating area to study in. And then UCLA has all of these interesting studies going on, interesting people. And so I really got hooked. Um, and then I was always interested in education. So this job in education was a perfect kind of uh, transition for me. And also, Marion was telling me I needed to do something on interventions, which I also hadn't done. We were just doing descriptive studies. Why, why was she saying that? Because we knew so much about the kids and the kinds of skills that were missing in their development. And so why not try to intervene on those? So she was saying, you've gathered this information. Let's try to apply it yep. in a way. Yeah. Uh, okay. So she really encouraged me to do the intervention studies. When you came across autism, mm-hmm. I mean, and I understand that this was the definition was a lot different than it is today. But what what was fascinating about it? Oh, just that. I mean, I used to say that working with Down syndrome kids, you would work with them, and you would be, you know, if you're sitting at a table, you're like everything to that child. You're like the only thing in the room, and yet when you sat down with a child with autism, you weren't even in the room. 
So the feel of just the interaction was so different and fascinating. So, you know, trying to figure that out and trying to help kids have a happy life, a productive life. And so to, to have a productive, happy life, you need to be able to talk or communicate in yeah. some way. So I really focused in on that social communication piece because that is the, you know, regardless of whether you have intellectual disability or not, you still need to be able to communicate in some way. So that was the fascinating part. Mm -hmm. So, but also, I think it sounds like you're saying it was a change. You were used to this kind of person in front of you, and suddenly you had almost an, an opposite one. And opposite you thought, well, this experience. is a different thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's try to figure this out. And both of them need to learn to communicate. But with the kids with Down syndrome or other kinds of developmental disabilities, you know, progress is just slower, but it feels like you're connected and making those changes together. Whereas with kids with autism, it just felt substantially different. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, what I learned by, you know, working with Marion and doing this work for a number of years is just a heterogeneity. So it's all over, all over the map. And so that also is really interesting, how you could be a savant, yeah. you know, a brilliant, or like, Leland, who yeah. does this art yeah. in my office, he's obviously an amazing artist and brilliant in his own way, but he's minimally verbal. To me, that's fascinating. Yeah. And then I have people that work in my lab that are highly verbal and also very talented, but a very different kind of person. Yeah. So that was part of the fascination. Yeah. Yeah. But what was the concept of autism at the time? If you can, you remember the sort of like what a classic definition would have been. Well, with working with little kids, that most of them didn't talk. 75% of them were not talking when they entered school at yeah. age five. That has drastically shifted. Now it's about 30%. Hmm. So we've done something well. You yeah. know, inter early interventions have made a huge difference. So that would have been classic. Um, just the fact that they might not have wanted to interact with you. The relationships were sort of more fragmented. Um, I, to me, those were the things. I, I didn't see the behavior issues as much. I mean, some people talk about a lot of behavioral challenges, and there can be, but I don't think of that as core. Right. Uh, well, tell me where I'm wrong, but sometimes that is tied to the inability to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think, in, I think you set your lab up in 1997, mm -hmm. your first time, is that right? Possibly. Yeah. That's when I started having grants here. Uh-huh. Um, through Semmel. I had moved from Semmel as a postdoc to um, School of Education. So for those first few years, I was mostly doing work on Down syndrome. Mm. So I was kind of creating my own independent line of research away from Marion. And then Marion got the CPA, which is the Consortium of Programs of Excellence in Autism, those first set of grants. Um, in 1997, and I had a project in that. That was my first intervention study. I see. Okay. So that's when we probably set up a lab here in that we were seeing kids that were in their um, early intervention program here. So when you set your lab up, how did you, I mean, how did you do it? How did you find the postdocs to work with you? How did you build a reputation so that people wanted to come here and learn? I mean, how did you mm. do that whole thing? Well, I remember I was in the School of Ed. I already had about 30 PhD students. Yeah. When I was 
as an assistant professor, the, all the other professors retired or moved in my division. I was the only one left, and there were like 35 <laughs> PhD students. So you inherited them is what I inherited me. them yeah. all, so I didn't have any problem <laughs> attracting students. I was just trying to weed through them to, you know, help them finish up. Yeah. Um, so I had, yes, I had graduate students already. And then I had a lab here, and we started to see kids off of the early intervention program that's upstairs, uh, one floor up. Uh-huh. And so I did this randomized control trial where we just randomized the kids who came into that program to different intervention components and tested those. Okay, so this, um, I was looking at your papers, and I think this, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think your first paper is still maybe your most cited. Oh, that might be a Could function be. of time, right? This I is have no idea. A longitudinal study of joint attention and... Play. Oh, no, language development in autistic children, is that right? Could be. Yeah. yeah. So can, can you tell me about that paper? Like, what were you <laughs> trying to get at when you started looking, this, and then what did you find? Was this the intervention paper? I think so. So yeah. I don't know which ones were cited, and I don't pay attention. Um, this was, a, I think... In 2006, uh, I had a paper that was an intervention study. I, that might be the one, yeah. So we, so we already knew from the work I'd done with Marion Sigmund and Peter Mundy here as part of my postdoc, and then a little bit later that kids with autism that are three and four and five years of age have difficulty with joint attention. Yeah. And so at that time, that, there was a lot of interest in what, these, what were the, considered the core deficits in ki- young kids with autism. Right. So joint attention was one of those. Um, and then play skills, at least symbolic play, was also an area of difficulty. But it didn't seem to be related to their language impairment as much as joint attention was. So I just did a little experimental study of intervention where we randomized kids coming into a early intervention program here, which was based on ABA, mm-hmm. mostly discrete trial, 30 hours a week. Kids stayed for about six weeks because that's what insurance would pay for. And we just randomized kids into either a joint attention intervention, a play intervention, or they just kept um, doing the ABA. And the question was whether or not we could improve joint attention and whether that would predict language. to language. Yeah. And it did. It did? It did. Yeah. Three and four-year-olds, it did. Why is that, though? Well, at that time, think about this. This was 30 years ago. The ABA programs weren't focused on gesture use. They weren't focused on really play skills. Um, so none of those skills were taught in the ABA program. But theoretically, in development for all kids. Kids learn to gesture and to communicate in that way before they learn to speak. So we just focused in on that early developmental um, set of skills. But is, is the, I mean, maybe this is known and I just don't know it, but is the idea that without the gesturing, without, when I'm talking to you, without me able to say glasses and pointing that you don't get the language, it's the gesturing that helps meld that in a child's mind. The gesturing and the, and the, and the, and the, the, and the communication with, yes, the yeah. word, but also the communication with the other person. Uh-huh. Being engaged. And that's actually what we found was so important from that first study was that the parents would drop their kids off at 8 a.m. and they'd come back at 2 and pick them up. So they weren't part of our intervention. I had graduate students doing the intervention. Um, and so, but we had the parents play with their kids before we started and then at the end of the six weeks and then, you know, in the follow-up. Yeah. And so parents didn't know if they were getting the joint attention or the play, you know, they didn't know a, that much about it. 
and yet they are responsive to their kids. So they responded in ways to their kids and their kids were developing these skills. And what was interesting was that both of my experimental groups, play or joint attention, parents were engaged with their kids longer than the kids in the in, that just continued ABA. So that ability to engage, that interest, that ability to communicate with another person increases if you can stay engaged. So that's why the, there's a jump in language, you think? Well, we've now shown that that is a, a good mechanism of of this particular intervention approach. Mm -hmm. So that, in fact, if you get Jasper and we're trying to improve your initiating of joint attention, because we know that predicts to language, that the mechanism is joint engagement. Huh. The longer you stay engaged. So I actually want to ask about Jasper, too. Right. So just can you take me through what, because it, it sounds like, I was reading the description, it sounds a lot like ABA in a, in a way. Um, mm. Right. So when you read on paper, all interventions kind of sound alike, right? Yeah. You're working with little kids, you're trying to increase skills, or yeah. you're trying to decrease negative behaviors, you know, challenging behaviors. So on paper, they probably do sound alike. But I think Jasper is uniquely different in some very particular ways. So we are very developmental in that we assess kids and we think about that kid who's right sitting in front of you and what it is that we need to, what gaps in development we need to fill in. And because all little kids are learning to um, do joint attention and requesting skills and communicate with their social partner, mm -hmm. they're learning to play. So those are the skills we're focused on. Um, but we take a very developmental approach to that. At the same time, we're going to use behavioral strategies too. So if a child has a challenging behavior, we're going to address those in the same way that somebody doing DTT would, right? They're going to look at the function of the behavior and they're going to try to figure out what they're going to need to do yeah. before the behavior happens, to prevent the behavior from happening. So in that sense, um, we're similar. But whereas discrete trial and I think when people say ABA in the negative connotations, that's what they're talking about. Um, whereas discrete trial is doing these kind of um, discrete skills, we're trying to connect them all together. So we're... It's sort of more holistically, I suppose, we yes, would say. Yes, yeah. more holistically, more like real world. Yeah. How kids really play. Yeah. So that's what we think about. I mean, do you think it's any more effective? It is more effective. In so the, why don't... You know, why don't we try things like Jasper all over the world well, instead of ABA? <laughs> well, both can be effective. So with those first studies, you know, adding in joint attention and play was in, contra in contrast to just discrete trials. Yeah. And so adding in teaching those skills matters. So could you teach those same skills using DTT? For some kids, absolutely. For other kids, no. So... I think we have to get to the point where we think about this individual child, sort of um, that moderation. Which kids are going to benefit from which intervention best? And we need to stop thinking about kind of horse races. This intervention's better than this one. Because at, at a particular age, a developmental age or situation, DTT could be better than Jasper. Mm. And we've actually have some data on this. so. Again, I think we want to think about the, the method, the approach, 
within an individual child. But the, so the hard part, I think, is that when, right, so ABA is now, I mean, it's still not readily available in parts of the country. They're slowly growing it, et cetera. But that is not all that individualized. I mean, it's meant to be, but right now it's sort of like you get a diagnosis, you go off to ABA, and uh-huh. that kid is sort of at the mercy of whatever that business is doing that day. Like, I don't think they're getting quite the individual attention that you're describing. And I don't know how that happens at scale. So you've just put your thumb on the problem. It's not ABA that's the, necessarily the problem. It's the implementation. Yeah. and. It's true. We need a, a workforce that has many tools in their toolbox and are more sophisticated. But when you have a whole industry that's only teaching one approach, that's all you're going to get. So then it doesn't feel like it's that individualized. Yeah. So that it's more in the implementation than it is the problem of the interventions. I started off doing um, you know, building Jasper, but we started with discrete trials at the table and then generalized to the floor in that first study. I dropped out the discrete trial as a separate thing um, for a, a number of different reasons. One is we the next study I did was with parents, and I didn't want parents doing discrete trials. Mm. It didn't feel normal, right. natural. Right. Um, but there are times when kids need a little bit of repetition to learn a skill. And I don't think there's a problem with that. But when you use it, sort of the timing of that is what turns out to be important. When you use the repetition, you mean? Yes. And you say timing, you mean like in their development, their, their age? It could be in their development, but also in the context of intervention. So, you know, I see a lot of kids who are minimally verbal, mm-hmm. who already are having very slowed progress. They're four and five and six and still not speaking with words or not very many yeah and so sometimes they need a little bit more direct instruction so i think of those repetitions as direct instruction letting them know what the expectation is and what we want but then it's important that you connect it within context which is what jasper does how do you play right it's it's not a discrete skill it's it's a connected set of behaviors so the, the, all, like, all the problems that ABA has, as far as scaling and getting individual treatment, that would be twofold if you were to try to implement Jasper because oh. it's a bigger yeah. So right, so, th- yeah. so how how do we make something that is actually that is proved to be useful to children? How do you actually implement it at a large scale? Yeah, I know everyone wants everything at a large scale, and of course that would be something we need to think about. But at the same time, do you want something that so autism is a very complicated condition yeah here let me, let me back up because I, I maybe wouldn't i shouldn't have said it's large scale but uh-huh. make it accessible for people who need it yeah i think we do want to have a lot of different interventions that are accessible to a lot of intervention uh, to a lot of individuals yeah at the same time you just don't want somebody come in off the street and be able to do this you want a really skilled workforce right that's also part of the problem with aba it is a problem. It's yeah. a problem across all of our interventions. Yeah. So I don't want somebody doing surgery on me that learned in a weekend. Yeah. And so how do we... So again, I think we start at the top. How are we teaching people to be, you know, in, in any profession? We have to be, I don't know, more skillful in the ways in which we teach them to go out and 
to do their work. And we need people to be open-minded and to ask questions and to collaborate. So that's kind of the first thing. We shouldn't have a, a lot of rigid people going out and teaching children who are also very rigid. Right, right. Um, I want to ask this because when we think about your career, how long you've been doing this and how long you've been in this lab and all the things that you've seen, like the, the field has changed incredibly. The description of autism has changed incredibly. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you feel about, like when you look at the research that was done 20 years ago, are there things that you wouldn't do today or that you, mm. you know, because the field has changed and, and you understand autism better than you did in 1997, for instance? Um, well, there's certainly words I wouldn't print anymore. Yeah. I mean, I have titles of papers that have mentally retarded yeah. in the titles. Yeah. I wouldn't use those anymore. I don't feel that I've done anything uh, particularly uh, abusive or negative in my work because I've always been sensitive to that. I've always had a developmental lens on yeah. the questions that I ask. And I think that the, the early work that we did, so even as a postdoc, the sort of issue of individuals with autism not wanting to, you know, interact with other people or wanting to be alone, we knew that not to be true. And we published studies where we said that's, is, this isn't true. It's not that they don't want to, it's that maybe it's the understanding of the context. And so to help people is to help them to understand different contexts yep. and nuances. So I, I feel like we've learned from that. I do feel like we repeat the same studies over and over because our, the people that are coming into the field now don't read the studies from 30 years ago. Really? Oh, because they think they're outdated. Yes, they uh -huh. only go back about 10 years. I see. And so it feels like we're just repeating some of the same studies that we had already done before. So yeah, it that's not progressing the field. Yeah. No, it yeah. slows our progress in some ways. Um, I still think there's a lot of things that we need to do in the future. And actually, I don't just do Jasper, and thank goodness I don't. Yeah. I do multiple kinds of interventions because as kids grow, you learn new things and you want to try or you want to address new problems. So that has been really interesting to me. And that and the fact that I go into schools or, you know, I'm looking at kids in different contexts. I see. Okay. And I, we talked about this before, but I also want to ask, because it's on the same theme of one of the things about autism that I find fascinating is that it has changed so quickly in 30 years. Mm. Um, both that's the neurodiversity movement, it's the concept of what it is. So I, I think that's fascinating, and, and you have seen that you know, up close and personal. So mm -hmm. I want to ask about INSAR, too, because that has <laughs> been like a magnifying glass almost for some of the issues. You want these kinds of presentations, you also want these kinds of presentations. You want these kinds of people to attend INSAR, you also want these kinds of mm -hmm. people to attend INSAR. So as the like, current president, how are you managing to do that? Well, first and foremost, we think of INSAR as the science of autism. So it's research. Yeah. It's not just clinical practice or service. So it is always about science. There's a lot of different kinds of science. And we have progressed in all areas of society by bringing in all different kinds of scientists. And I think that we want INSAR to reflect that broad view of science. And it's not for one group of people from you know any area to say that we don't accept this kind of science. Yeah. We don't accept sham science or right. 
um, harmful science. Now, people have different opinions about what is harmful, um, but again, there's a broad view of science here, and we do want to be scientific because there are other organizations that can that address you know, more ethical issues or social issues or service issues, you know, parent organizations or autistic individual organizations, and yeah. they all have an important role. But our focus is really on science. So, but the science has broadened over the years. Certainly, because as scientists have broadened and have understood different aspects of autism, but also different methodologies. And so, yes, you can bring all of those together. I mean, there's never enough in any one area for any one group. They're always complaining. Like, I heard a lot of people wanting more on education and on schools, and we don't have as much in INSAR as we would like. So I think that's my question. So then are you, when you hear that, are you thinking, well, okay, let's try to get more in education then? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're always wanting people to come together. But unless people are around the table, you, you don't hear their voice. And educators, school folks, are often not around the table for any kind of autism research. I've been saying this for 30 years, where are the educators? And, and the fault lies on both the, the sort of medical science part and the school part. Where are the educators? Well, they're doing their own thing. They're going to education seminars. Yeah, they're ah. doing their own thing. But we need to bring them together. So when you have NIH coming together with workshops, we need to have educators around the table. Yeah, they I have consider that. Yeah, that's they a good have idea. an important voice in all of this. So, but that's not, but you're saying also, that's not particularly INSAR's focus. But you're saying they should come and listen well, no, they could bring in educational research. Oh, yeah, that's Any true. kind of science is welcome. Yeah. Preclinical -cl pre animal research is welcome, as well as sociological kind of research. So to me, those are, you know, different ends of a spectrum. Yeah. I just, I mean, I had this feeling that, um, you know, the criticism would come, but I don't think that they were aware, as I wasn't really until I asked you, um, how much thought goes into planning it out. Yeah, a lot of thought goes into planning it out, but and also in sort of balancing and magnifying certain voices. So <laughs> last year was my first year, and of course we were in Texas. Yeah. And Texas came out with some very unpopular, you know, policy positions that upset a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, and rightfully so. And so, but we had planned to go to Austin for like five years. So these are things that one doesn't just Walk shift. Away from, yeah, yeah, you can't just shift. So instead, we we gathered and we did have these civil discourse conversations where we brought people together with the idea that you bring people around the table to discuss these really kind of difficult conversations. Yeah. And they were great. So we they had, were great. The, yeah, we had two. Were you there? No, I was oh. in Austin, but I wasn't. I wasn't at. Oh, you didn't come. I was in. I was at the meeting, but I wasn't at. I think what the specific moment you're oh, talking yeah, about. Oh yeah, the civil. We had two on Thursday. Yeah. One was on LGBTQ youth. These are the SIGs we're talking about. The no. No. The SIGs are also going on, but these were separate. They were civil discourse conversations. Uh -huh. So we had one on LGBTQ yeah. plus youth, and one on um, ethnic racial diversity. Yeah. 
two important areas for us as researchers, but also we're contentious in the, the state. Next year we'll be in Sweden, yeah. and we're going to have civil discourse conversations, and we're looking to the membership to, to raise some issues. They've already raised a couple of issues, and one of those is bringing together, I don't know if this is one we'll do, but it is bringing together parents of profound autism um, children or yep. adults and the neurodiversity community so that they have a conversation together um, because there seems to be tension there and yeah, it's right. unclear why we should have that kind of tension yeah yeah uh, yes somebody told me um, that there's actually an area between those two groups that they are focused on and they both would like to see more research at places like INSAR focused on present day for the not like genetics but like how can my child get through the day right. so those two groups are actually focused on that they just don't necessarily sometimes know it I think yeah they're yeah they're both focused on the same sort of outcome but yeah. one takes a, a longer time to get to the immediate issue yeah and I think we have all of that happening at INSAR there are there are certainly researchers that are focused on families and present day and challenge we've had we have a SIG on challenging behaviors Yes, getting through the day and not having my child hospitalized and yeah. is really important. Yeah. And the idea that some people are minimally verbal or non-speaking, and how do we amplify their voice? And so the people that can amplify their voice the best are the family members around them. Um, but the family members don't think that the neurodiversity community speaks for them, and the neurodiversity uh, movement doesn't see the parents speaking for them and so really we have to get together and talk about those common areas of, of where we do speak the same language yeah I mean I would like to go to that I'll, maybe I'll make, make that a priority because I think I honestly also think that if you get people in the room it's gonna be better than what you see online I mean online amplifies all the tensions that we have well online too you can hide or mask behind that sort of avatar yeah and yeah. so I don't know I I actually don't Read it. Don't Good. Listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably healthier for it. Well, yeah, I don't want to hear about all the things that I'm not doing or yeah. am doing. So, yeah. um, I'm, I'm I'm about done. I want to ask you one thing. So, how big was your school? Like your high school? Oh, I mean, I don't know, a hundred people maybe. Total. Total. Okay, so twenty-five, Tiny. thirty oh, class. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what is it about? Do you think that um, when you came across children who are in special ed that pulled you in that fascinated you. Was it this concept that they're being left behind and nobody's doing anything about it? Yeah. Or that was it? Oh yeah, equity, just social justice. And I still feel that way. I mean, why do we have children on core curriculum, so meaning the same curriculum as a third grader in gen ed, yeah. but they're in a separate classroom? Does that make any sense? And that still goes on today. I don't understand why kids on core curriculum are in separate classrooms. I don't understand always why kids on alternate curriculum are in separate classrooms. There are certainly places where kids can come together in the morning for morning meeting and maybe they if you're on an alternate curriculum you have to go out and have separate, you know, A class instruction. Or something, yeah. Right. But there are many times during the day where you should know the other kids in your class. And the other kids in your class should know that you exist. Yeah. But why? I'm like, I'm curious as to, I don't know that everybody would feel that way, though. But for some reason, you did feel that way. Yeah. And do you have any idea why, why that is? 
I mean, is it was a part of your family or is there something probably, in Connie? Probably. I mean, we had all kinds of hired hands that had disabilities. And I mean, I can remember very salient, um, you know, co contact with people. I didn't have people in my family with disabilities, although, although my father had, um, I think, five siblings and one died when she was 12 of a heart hmm. disorder. And much later, I saw pictures of this little girl. She had Down syndrome. Oh, I wow. see. <laughs> so I did have... And like, that's not even part of the family history. No, well, they never mentioned that she had Down syndrome. Yeah. Maybe they didn't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but clearly, she had Down syndrome. But, but I didn't grow up with um, siblings or with family members who had disabilities. But I think my parents, my family always, you know, cared for other people and were inclusive. And, you know, I lived in a farming community, so everyone was pretty inclusive. And something about that just, I don't know, something about that bothered you. You thought these people are not given the same attention as everybody else, They're not getting the same resources as the other kids. And there's no reason they just happen to be born differently. Right, although I think they were in my class, so they were given. So maybe I, I don't know, maybe I just... Yeah, so you, yeah, they weren't off in the basement, as you were saying. They weren't off schools. in the basement, yeah. yeah. But, you know, trying to reach them to figure out how they could learn is still fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay, that's it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, I became a professor in 1990, but I was here in 1985 for, for my fellowship. postdoc. Yeah. yeah. So okay. you did a little research. Huh? Oh yeah, of course, of course. Oh my goodness! I'm not gonna come in here and be blind. That would be a terrible <laughs> interview. 